When you first encounter another person, do you notice their features, the color of their skin, their body shape, their gender presentation, age, clothing, hair, or anything else about them, and make assumptions about who they are and what they have to offer? Of course you do. We all do. And because we all have biases, we can miss out on the beautiful complexity of our fellow human beings, and our ignorance and intolerance can create harm. When it comes to bias in the workplace, unexamined prejudices and assumptions lead to unfair and discriminatory decisions about things like hiring, firing, salaries, promotions, whose voices are listened to, and who is extended the grace to make mistakes. I'm Darylise Lyons, a flawed and biased human. And while I will forever hold biases, conscious and not, I can tell you that having interviewed hundreds of people with a myriad of experiences and identities, I've increased my capacity to embrace more of humanity. Before moving into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people past, present, and future for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is Episode 7 of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This is Moving Beyond Biases, a Humanistic Approach. Just to be clear, it's not possible or even desirable to eradicate bias, but we do want to interrogate it. When I teach implicit bias... The very first thing I say is bias is not a dirty word. We all have biases. It's part of natural human cognitive functioning. What we want to do is become more aware of them and control the ones that are negative, that don't express how we actually want ourselves to act in the world. I think acknowledging and talking about how bias functions is incredibly important in a workplace. That was Leora Eisenstadt, an associate professor in the Department of Legal Studies at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, a Murray Schusterman Research Fellow, the director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick, and an assistant producer and consultant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. When we are operating without being aware of our biases is when we're in danger of allowing false beliefs to disadvantage certain people and overinflate the importance of others. And this is important because of the pain generated by those biased decisions and interactions in the moment, and also the long-term ramifications of unchecked bias. It's well documented that in America, when comparing the average incomes of individuals of different identities working the same jobs, women make less than men, Black employees less than white ones, and those with physical or neurological disabilities less than their able-bodied or neurotypical counterparts. Bias leads to inequity in compensation and in opportunity for many individuals of underrepresented or marginalized identities, and these disparities have a compounding effect over time. Thinking about the pay example, let's say someone is being paid $2,400 less a year as a result of bias. 
$2,400 a year over a 50-year employment period, not taking into account salary increases, bonuses, or interest, comes to $120,000. But if that money were invested and or earning a nominal 5% interest, it would amount to over half a million dollars. And that's still not accounting for bonuses, salary increases, or cost of living adjustments. All of that is a tremendous difference, not only in income, but in purchasing power, the ability to save, funding one's retirement, the capacity to build generational wealth, and overall quality of life. And the wage example is one of many that prove that making assumptions about others and then acting on those assumptions has the power to determine a whole host of factors about another person's entire life trajectory. Here's Sharona Pearl, an associate professor of bioethics and history at Drexel University, a historian theorist of the face and body, who has authored numerous books, scholarly essays, and freelance articles. How much do our biases around what's the right skin color to have, what's the right gender presentation to have, thus cause us to read certain people's appearance as always being less than the best version of it, and to somehow imagine there's some truth in that or some empirical reading in it. So we have a lot of undoing work to do. When it comes to undoing, one of the most effective ways to dismantle our own biases is through meaningful exposure, which may mean listening to the stories of others, or developing new friendships and relationships, or traveling. Anel Duarte specializes in facilitating one-on-one and group practices under the trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed lenses. A trauma survivor herself, Anel holds safe space for participants to explore their internal experiences through yoga, body movement, meditation, the use of rituals, and breathing techniques. Additionally, her interests center in intersectional social justice and gender violence advocacy in order to dismantle systems of oppression and to create a world where it is possible to live our lives in dignity, free from patriarchal, colonial, and capitalist violence. Anel told me that traveling to and living in a multitude of places has expanded her perspective. I grew up in a small city in Mexico where diversity is, is limited, really. And I was a very curious person like, <laughs> since I was a child. And I was, as a woman of mixed ancestry, trying to understand my concept of my own ethnicity, my own race, my own struggles, my own privileges in relationship to the world and not just in relationship to part of the world, (laughs) you know, where I lived in, where I grew up. This has been a huge, huge expanding way of of looking life. It's not the same. My, My experiences and intersections move with me. So it's never the same to be a female citizen in Mexico, speaking my own language, knowing the power dynamics of my culture or the culture I was born in. And then being a woman, a solo traveler in India, single, speaking another language. And then... I don't know, nowadays here in the UK, 
being a woman married to a white British man and also having this migratory status. Yeah, it, it shapes my identity and, and the way I look at it and the way also the world perceives me. It has given me definitely a wider sense of perception. It has opened so many doors and, and I just look at life as a continuous exploration. We don't have to go far in order to gain exposure to different cultures. Anel mentioned being a woman of mixed ancestry. I am as well. Cameron Footman is also a mixed race person. He is the first voice of Indigipedia.ca, a lifelong entrepreneur and technology advocate, and the founder of Woodcrest Construction, a contracting company which specializes in welding and steel fabrication with a focus on heated furniture and art metalworks. Cameron told me that his multi-ethnic background helped him to gain exposure to others, as well as a deeper sense of his own identity. I think there's a really interesting experience that one has when exposed to a multitude of cultures and worlds. Yeah, I think it's really apparent too in downtown Toronto, like being a indigenous European mixed growing up in Little Italy. My mother grew up in Atacokan, uh, Northern Ontario, though my, my reservation is uh, Rainy River, Manitou Rapids, Treaty 3, six hours west of Thunder Bay, but still in Ontario. We used to go visit my, my great-grandmother and family there fairly often when we were younger. It's a, a kind of large family, so it was hard to get us all traveling. Um, so we spent a lot of time on the reserve. Also, my, my mother's part of the Madewan Society of um, the southern shore of Lake Superior. The, there's ceremonies. We used to go down there quite often when I was a kid. I grew up around some like pretty cool indigenous people, right? The, the leaders of the, the lodge were all the founding AIM members, the American Indian movement. Uh, Minnie Two Shoes was a famous journalist for the American Indian movement. She, she lived with us when I was younger, you know, she was the, the crazy aunt. My mother was, uh, my stepfather was Gary Farmer, who's an indigenous actor, publisher from Aboriginal Voices, and they did Buffalo Tracks Radio as well. I don't mean to present an overly simplistic image. Cameron hasn't always embraced multicultural exposure. When I was a teenager, going to summer ceremonies actually fell on my birthday. So, you know, I really didn't want to do the, the two-day trip to Wisconsin to do religious Native ceremonies on my 13th birthday. I think growing up with it around me has been really important, uh, I guess, as I get older and, you know, I'm not so rebellious. So, I mean, I guess I didn't realize how important it was when I was a kid and how I, I kind of took it a bit for granted for people who don't have that same access that, that I do. Learning about who we are and where we fit is important. So is learning about others. For instance, Jackie Lipton grew up in Australia and moved to the United States as an adult. Jackie is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, an attorney, a literary agent at the Tobias Literary Agency, the founder of the former Ravenquill Literary Agency, and the author of numerous academic texts and Law and Authors, a Legal Handbook for Writers. I asked Jackie what the experience of relocating from Australia to the U.S. was like for her. Literally, I was thinking about this last night. And I mean, I think part of it is because I work in, in the children's industry where so much of what we convey in 
children's books are about finding one's place in the world or about thinking about these things for the first time. And it's something I've struggled with all my life and certainly moving to the States. I've been here about 20-odd years now. We moved initially for my job. So I was a full-time law professor and I had the opportunity to work in an American law school and I'd always been curious about, you know, the Socratic method and the paper chase and all of that stuff. So I'm like, yeah, let's go and experience that. And we didn't have kids and I had a very uh, adventurous husband who's also Australian. So we, we thought, yeah, let's do this. And, of course, we arrived right before September 11. We arrived in July of that year. So very quickly we learned that we were not American. And I understand it. I, I, I was mystified a little at the time and very scared because everyone was scared. But lots and lots of comments about how we, we wouldn't understand patriotism and we wouldn't understand what this means and we're not really American. And certainly I understand it in that context, but that was our entree, coupled with the fact that American Traditionally, American education is pretty insular. So, you know, people thought, like educated people thought, we lived in huts and tents in the outback and had kangaroos hopping around. You know, I lived in Melbourne, which is a city that's 10 times bigger than Cleveland, where I live now, had a lot more amenities. So, so that was weird. But I think as time has gone on, it's confusing for me because I'm, I sort of pass as a middle-class white American because that's how I present. Like if no one hears my accent, I present as a nice white lady who's part of all of the problems in this country. You know, in a sense, I, I choose to be here. I don't excuse myself from being part of that dynamic. But I do come from a very different background. You know, I come from a country where really horrible things were done to the to the Indigenous population that played out quite differently in Australia to the way it played out in America. Uh, we did not have slavery. There was no reason. I mean, there were, we did not have a history. My kids asked me about this yesterday because they're learning about it in high school. Interestingly, growing up, and anyone who's been to, lived in Melbourne or Sydney can tell you this, you don't see African faces. I might have seen one or two African faces in Melbourne when I was young, because, you know, to the extent there's been migration from African countries, it's been white South Africans. So it's so interesting that while I intellectually understand and I've studied and I've read about the history of the US, and I represent, as you say, I represent a lot of authors from various BIPOC cultures, and I've learned a lot, and I'm still learning, the culture I come from, you know, it's certainly not perfect, it's got tons of problems, but it's different. So it's so hard for me often, particularly if I walk into a conversation or a negotiation and there's an assumption that I've grown up here and that I know the history, I've done my best to educate myself. But it's, yeah, I've been looking at what my kids learn and, yeah, it's, it's hard to articulate that, but it, is diff- it does feel different. When people look at Jackie, they make assumptions about her identity and experiences that are not accurate. This is something with which Sky Kowaleski has a lot of experience. Sky is a writer, director, facilitator, speaker, consultant, and therapeutic breathwork practitioner whose multidisciplinary approach supports people in showing up to the world as all of who they are. Sky invites those they work with to create internal awareness while simultaneously building their capacity for constructive communication with others. 
I mean, physical description of me, I am a white non-binary person. I identify as bisexual. I'm in my early thirties. I have short hair, short brown hair, sort of pumped up. I'm from a middle-class background, <laughs> grew up in California and moved across the country to New York and now in Philly. So I'm now, I'm like a very like East coast, West coast hybrid human. <laughs> yeah. I'm able-bodied slender human person. Yeah. I think all of those inform how I walk through the world. And I think that we are all always so many different things. And when I look at the the list that I gave, I think at different points, like different identities that I hold come into focus. I think I first and foremost try to think about my whiteness because I know that it like it is a a big way that I walk through the world in terms of the privileges that I hold and the history that my body holds as a white person specifically while I identify as non-binary also acknowledge that I'm cis assumed which means that usually if you were to just meet me on the street like despite that I fact that I have short hair and don't dress in like particularly femme clothing, you'd be like, that's a woman. And that's also a privilege in and of itself and part of how I walk through the world. And so I try to think about the legacy of of white womanhood in that way too, that knowing that that's often like how, like that's often existing between me and other people. And then definitely exists in like the culture of how I grew up. And then in terms of my queerness, I think that's like a whole other angle. I think a lot about the ways in which we hold marginalized identities and the ways in which we don't and how those are like constantly at play and moving in spaces. There can be a fluidity to not only identity, but to how based on certain conditions, the same identity can be perceived and privileged differently depending on the context. Stu Kreintz is a mindset success and relationships coach who works with people individually and in groups to empower them into ownership of their lives. Before stepping into coaching, Stu had a successful career in sales and marketing within professional baseball, having the opportunity to work for the New York Yankees and the Atlanta Braves, as well as several affiliated minor league clubs. He is also the production and development assistant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. For those of you who can't see what I look like, I am a very, very white guy. (laughs) Um, I I am, you know, a very, very milky white skin tone. And that's just the way God made me. And, you know, I, I love who I am and what I look like, but because my privilege that I very clearly have and, and grew up with just from the color of my skin really didn't hit me until maybe college. Cause I grew up playing basketball super competitively. And there's the stereotypes that basketball is a black man's game or white people are not in basketball or their job is just to be the big goofy white guy in the middle, or they just stand in the corner and shoot threes. And so I didn't, quite think of myself as having privilege until much later, because the thing I was throwing myself into with all of my heart, all of my passion, I actually was in the minority in that sense. And so that actually skewed my perception of things for a while. But when I got to school, 
at the University of Oregon, which ironically at the time was about an 85% white school, I started meeting kids that didn't have braces or hadn't had braces in their youth or had to drive 18-wheeler trucks across the country to afford tuition. And in some cases, had to actually choose between, am I going to buy some snacks at the store that was on campus? Am I going to buy this Twix bar or am I going to make a tuition payment? And even though I was in a place where I was responsible for putting myself through school largely because of the Great Recession hitting right as I was a freshman in college, just the basic things like that that were just a non-issue in my life was when I really started to see the privilege that I had. And maybe the most poignant thing and the most interruptive time I can think of was the time period I was at the New York Yankees, which is suit and tie every single day. You show up clean shaven or they send you home, very protective of their image. It's a very white culture. You know, we work out of Yankee Stadium, which is in the Bronx. And the time period I was there was during the 2016 election. And a certain president (laughs) that we had in our past was in the forefront of society all over the news. And I would get off the train at the Yankee Stadium stop on the four line, and I would be called Donald Trump, a gentleman who may or may not have been under the influence, punched me in the chest one day as I was getting off the train. You know, I was told to go home multiple times, like you aren't wanted here. And while that was scary for me in the moment, I also had the deep knowing that these people who were all Black, Hispanic, or or other ethnic minority groups were basically reflecting their fears and their anxieties of what was to come, as we would see under that administration, onto me because of the image I was projecting getting off of the train in a full suit and tie, my hair done just perfectly with however many gobs of hair paste I was putting in that day. And something that I keep reflecting back on working on this show with you is just how important empathy is. And again, while I was scared out of my mind when this guy just full on cold cocks me getting off of the train, it wasn't lost on me in the moment that he's quite literally fighting for survival. And I was the closest representative to what he felt like he had to survive against, even though I was not personally doing anything to him. I was just trying to get to work. And yeah, I just remember that to this day. We demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder we embark, invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other? 
Stu's experiences convey the shifting and arbitrary nature of perceptions and how by stripping people of their complexity and projecting our own feelings and fears onto them, we dehumanize them and then as a result treat them in inhumane ways, which is why it's so essential for people to see one another accurately and not dismiss each other based on factors such as race, gender, ability, education, experience, or age. And by the way, bias doesn't only come from those who are clearly antagonists. It can also come from allies. So private company, very well known, very consumer facing. One of their key leaders, who at the time was their president, had been one of my investors in my firm. And so he wanted to coach me and he did give me some very helpful advice and some practice. But even he, who was really rooting for me, and said he thought I was very bright and I had a lot of ideas that he hadn't seen put in place. He said, Alita, you're going to have challenges because you don't have any gray hair. And guys like me are going to talk to you and there are going to be 11 people like you waiting out the door and they're all going to look more credible than you. So what are you going to do in that situation? And again, I was lucky that I had a different advisor and I'll name her because she should get credit for this, but her name is Brian Mitchellish and she is the chief of staff at Jelly Vision, which is a healthcare tech company. And she and I had talked about this ageism thing (laughs) that I had been confronting. And she was somebody who came up in her career young and got to the C-suite young. And she taught me something that I said to him, which was, let me ask you a question about your company. How many of the people who are leaving that you're worried about in terms of your retention look like me? And he said, no, I mean, we have a terrible problem with millennials. The attrition rate is so much higher than our other employees. And I said, I figured. And I think the reason you would choose me over the 11 folks outside the door is because I'm closer to your problem. I am your problem. And it was that coaching that really helped me have the courage to say that. And in some ways now I think, wow, that was a really, that was an assertive response on my part too. There was something almost daring about it, but it was also true. Ultimately, I've always come from a place of use all of yourself as the tool because that's what you have. And so that was an identity I could rely on. That was Alita Miranda Wolf, author of Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last, and CEO and founder of Ethos, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging firm dedicated to closing the opportunity gap for underrepresented and underserved groups. As Alita shared, who we are is what we have. And those very same things about us that others are judging are often the things from which we can derive the greatest value. For instance, Juan Otero shared with me that his experiences growing up are what continue to provide a foundation for his understanding of the importance of advocating not only for himself, but for others. Juan currently serves as Senior Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Comcast Corporation, where he oversees operational management of the company's DE&I efforts across the corporate enterprise. 
Juan previously served as vice president for Comcast Corporation's federal government affairs team, where he was responsible for federal legislative advocacy with members of Congress and the administration. In addition, he sits on several national nonprofit boards, including Easter Seals, the Hispanic Federation, and the Smithsonian's Latino Center. From the South Bronx, born and raised, mom and dad, migrants from Puerto Rico, seeing my dad, what he went through, what they both went through, I should say, really sort of instilled the, you know, seeing how the world was shaped up. You know, one of the beauties of living in the South Bronx is if you do get to see the awareness. And, you know, I was growing up a time in the South Bronx where there was AIDS was raging. It was the burnt out buildings. It was garbage in the streets. Sort of that, you know, that other New York that no one pays attention to. And yet you went across this bridge or you took the, as I would, the four train or the D train and you went to Manhattan and you see how other folks live and the streets were clean and, you know, the whole issue of equity. And it really stuck with me seeing literally this 10-minute train ride, how two worlds live next to each other, and yet the outcomes for education, the outcomes for you know, economic survival, economic growth, all the things that we're looking at now from a, a systemic racism, literally a 10-minute train ride, how different those universes were. So I think it started there and really having my parents instill in me early on this notion of, you know, I am my brother's keeper, and you will take care of other folks, because that's what you're supposed to do. We are shaped by the values and the lessons we derive from our families, communities, cultures, identities, and personalities. The problem isn't recognizing that our worldviews arise out of our identities, cultures, and experiences. The problem is when others superimpose their two-dimensional understandings onto three-dimensional individuals. Here's Cameron again. I've definitely been in some super uncomfortable situations, especially being a successful indigenous man, right? You know, I've had people be like, well, why aren't you helping out with uh, like, you should totally give back like, oh, I can't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is making me really uncomfortable. There's also a weird fetishization. I went to a girl's house in high school and she had a native room with a canoe on the ceiling. Or, you know, I get the, oh, you're a Jibwe? I was a Jibwe at camp, <laughs> you know? What do you do in those situations? Laugh and get out. And it's really like, I just, I don't know how to respond without going off into some deep, wild tangent. Who's to say they would even listen? Right. Well, internally, what happens to you when those things happen? Like, what's the internal impact, if any? I think it just it just highlights what we have to work on, what we have to, you know, educate people, kind of keep fighting. And that's the thing. I don't think there's any, you know, a lot of times there's no, you know, malice intent behind it. It's just it's sheer ignorance. Hopefully there is a rising awareness of the value of diversity, but there's still a lot of ignorance surrounding the subject. I spoke with Rocky and Jeff Maynard. Rocky is a licensed financial coach, speaker, and workshop facilitator who previously worked as a human resources executive. Jeff is a financial services professional and full-time entrepreneur. 
Prior to his transition to entrepreneurship, Jeff worked in IT telecommunications, and prior to that, he served eight and a half years in the United States Navy. He and Rocky have been married since October of 2011 and own and operate a business together. They're an interracial couple with four children between them, and they shared with me some instances of biases that they sometimes face while doing everyday activities. We'll go to the grocery store and we'll be fooling, you know, like we're, we're following, laughing, we're checking out. And the cashiers, it happens more often than not. They separate our stuff or they're like, oh, are y'all together? Like, why do you need to ask? Why do you need to ask that? Or they'll look at my kids. Are those your kids? I'm like, fix your face. And yeah. She's not the nanny. This is my wife. You just gave her the total of the first half of the groceries. Like, <laughs> thank you. We appreciate that. We're not worried about the budget here. You can go ahead and ring up the rest. It's fine. How do you react to that, both internally and externally? I have truly, really worked on what I'm feeling inside is what's going to come out. So (laughs) there's really not a mismatch and maturely. So not like I'm, you know, I I don't feel like I want to punch anybody. So it's not like like holding off. No, I'm just if it makes me angry in the moment, then I'm like, you know, excuse me. That was rude. I'll address it in that manner. If I'm feeling jovial, then I'll go, well, 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 you just ask if we're together. We'll see. He's been following me around for the last 13 years. I don't know. I might give him my number if he pays for these groceries. So I may crack a joke if I'm feeling jovial. If I'm feeling sad about it, depending on how we've interacted with the person. And if I'm disappointed, then I I will say it. Boy, that was disappointing. I'll say, gosh, that saddens me that you would even ask that. Because again, I live for impact. So I want you to know that your intention didn't match the impact. I know you didn't intend to offend us, but you're not even aware of what you're doing, your impact that what you're saying. So in return, I get to be a mirror in that instance, like that hurt or I'm disappointed or gosh, that was really alarming that you would say that kind of angers me that people still do that today. My natural more often is why'd you ask? What made you ask? What do people say? They're shocked. They're dumbfounded. Oh, well, I didn't mean I did. I, no, no, no. I didn't mean I, I, I just I didn't want to assume. I'm like, assume? Like, they don't have an answer. They really don't. And that to me is just that's a reflection of what's happening today. Being part of an interracial couple or having any experience where we are regularly and intimately exposed to different cultures and identities enables us to learn from that proximity. The same holds true when we undergo a shift within ourselves, such as stepping into a new conception of our gender identity or acquiring a disability. For Tanner Gears, becoming disabled as an adult has been an illuminating experience. It's an incredibly unique opportunity to to wear two different pairs of life shoes and understand what that means from the perspective of you know, how the world works and you have a framework for that and you're able to do certain things within that framework and succeed. And then one day with these new pair of shoes on, all of a sudden you look different, people talk to you different, people expect difference. And because of this new difference, you become oppressed and segregated and discriminated against. And it really kind of helped me wake up to my privilege and really understand like, holy moly, like I feel so blessed to have the faculties that I have considering my TBI that ultimately resulted in me losing my sight. 
was like, man, some people just don't have the drive, the ambition, the resolve, the ability to communicate and articulate oneself and express oneself and be competitive and, and have confidence within one's ability. I feel so blessed to have all these things. And like, there's so many people that don't. And if I'm struggling this much, like how much struggle is everybody else facing? I also feel like it's really interesting how our life prepares ourselves to manage pressure later on in life. I had a really young mom and she was a right, you know, ended up going to school uh, when I was growing up and became a writing professor. And so I was around, you know, these graduate students with really, you know, they look different. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that this was a transgender or a bisexual or gay or lesbian. You know, I didn't understand that this was the LGBTQI plus community in front of me. It was just people. And then volunteering at Easter Seals in the early 90s when the ABA was so raw and new, and we had to bring ramps everywhere we went. And being around neurodivergent individuals early on, but I'd never met a blind person in my life before I went blind. But all of that collective experience prepared me to handle what I'm facing today and what so many people are facing today. Tanner is president and founder of Accessibility Officer, a data-driven disability inclusion firm who helps companies drive ability DNI and maximize ROI. Tanner also serves as a board member for Menus for All and recently co-authored Foresight Augmented Realities Solution Proposal for the U.S. Department of Transportation's Inclusive Design Challenge and is a U.S. Paralympian World Championship team member. And to his point, if we want to begin to dismantle some of our biases, it's important to be exposed to a variety of identities and experiences. Having said that, just because you've met one person who possesses a certain identity doesn't mean you know the experience of every person who holds that same identity. Social identity groups are not monolithic in and of themselves, and so know that there is diversity within that. That was Jonathan Howe, a professor at Temple University, whose research centers broadly on the intersection of race, sport, and education. Within these intersections, Jonathan focuses on Black male college athletes, as well as Black coaches and athletic administrators. He has presented his work at national and international conferences and has been published in numerous academic journals. Jonathan described his work as me-search because he is a Black man in the world of athletics, studying the experiences of Black men in sports. He told me that hearing the stories of those he interviews helps him better understand himself and his own experiences. But we don't have to share another person's identities to devote time and energy to learning more about who they are and what they've been through. For instance, Rebecca Tesfai, an associate professor and researcher at Temple University, told me this about why she focuses her research on the experiences of Black immigrants in America and elsewhere. Rebecca's research provides a comprehensive account of Black immigrants' economic, political, and residential incorporation over time and across place. Using quantitative methods, she studies Black immigrants' occupational wage, voting, housing, and residential patterns and uses these analyses to re-examine our theoretical understanding of both immigrant incorporation and racial stratification. I think I got interested in, in the different experiences of immigrants just because I understood that there's different populations in different places and that can mean different things. So that's 
how I got interested in immigration research more broadly. And within that, Black immigrants aren't really researched very much. And I think it's important to look at these under-researched groups and understand that, you know, immigrants are not homogenous and race and ethnicity and even distance from home country can play a real role in the experiences that they have in the United States and also their ability or the different types of choices they might make, I guess, in terms of housing and and working, because there's different possibilities for whether or not you can go back and forth and whether or not you might spend your whole life here. This is a group that that people didn't really pay attention to as much, at least until more recently. And I thought it was important to do that. She told me she's learned a lot about those who are under-researched, and the process has changed how she conceptualizes, maybe not herself, but certainly how she sees the work she does. I've learned that race has a much larger role than I think I expected when I started this kind of research, because if I started it feeling like an immigration scholar and not really a race scholar because I was focusing on immigration. I'm an immigration scholar who studies Black people, which is not quite the same thing as being a race scholar in terms of the things that you learn when you're in graduate school. And the research has changed my mind about exactly what kind of scholar I am. I'm an immigration and a race scholar, not necessarily in the same way as other race scholars, but I think I would call myself that now because the work has necessitated that I engage with that literature and I engage with more of the work focusing on racial disparities because of what Black immigrants are experiencing in the United States. And I did expect some of that, obviously, because they are Black people in the United States, but not quite to the same extent as I found. And so it's it's sort of broadened the kind of work that I do. On the topic of learning, bias is learned. We are taught to devalue those who are different than ourselves or to devalue elements of who we are. In some cases, we're outright taught to hate, which is what happened to Jolly Good Ginger. Jolly is a well-known social justice advocate. He was raised in the mountains of North Carolina in a racist household in an all-white town. Growing up, he was taught racism and bigotry at home, in church, at school, basically everywhere. When, as a teenager, he realized he'd been taught hate and lies, Jolly made it his mission to expose white supremacy to the world and actively fight to dismantle it from within the white community. He is on the board of directors for two nonprofit organizations, Families United and Justice Reform Group. As a national-level activist, Jolly travels the country and attends rallies, marches, and protests, gives speeches at various venues, and has garnered a social media following of over one million subscribers. My upbringing was probably a little bit more direct and blunt than some, but I, I don't want it to be viewed as an anomaly or some rare thing. There's a lot of people who received direct blunt racism the way that I did, but they don't admit it. Where I come from, just in general, the N-word is, is casual conversation. Racism is so casual that it's hidden in plain sight. The, the, the big thing about white America is they say, well, if you stop talking about race, it won't exist. And that's true to white Americans because you're never forced to reconcile with your race. You're never forced to recognize your race. You're never forced to, to even acknowledge your race as long as nobody ever talks about it. And white Americans is true. So growing up, I did not realize what racism was or that racism was happening around me. It was that 
after I saw the light and then deconstructed my own childhood and thought about it, did I recognize the patterns that was teaching racism? The fact that black people are continually dehumanized in subtle ways. And then there's this very common philosophy that's taught in households all across America, and many white Americans will admit this, and that is, they'll tell you there's a difference between a black person and an N-word. They'll tell you, it's very common. There's a difference between a black person and an N-word. You know, a black person is, is a good, loving person, takes care of the family, works hard, follows the law. And N-word, well, they sag their pants and sell drugs and don't work and they want everything for free. And then what they'll do to try to escape the idea of this being racist, they'll say, and white people can be N-words too. No, you tag that on the at the end. It's very clear that you've specifically separated black people into two categories and no other people have been separated into this category. It's the dehumanization. And you hear this enough the association to sagging pants and hairstyles and the association to, you'll hear people, you know, listen to how he talks. He wants people to take him seriously talking like that. It ain't about racism. It's about talk right. Son, we don't even talk right. But the way we talk is not as demonized and dehumanized because we're white. I mean, I would literally hear people say, he don't even talk good. Like, no, bro, you don't talk good. So what happens is there's this, I guess, watering down of racism that happened so that people can reconcile with their own morals and values that I think this way for a justified reason, not because I'm racist. It's justified. And that translates into every aspect of white America. White Americans are taught subtly from their parents on different levels, different spe- I had white people who say, well, my parents didn't even talk to me. Right? My parents told me to treat everybody the same. And this is another thing white people need to understand. It is not enough. It is absolutely not enough to not teach your children racism if you don't teach your children anti-racism. Because the thing is, if you don't teach them racism, the world will. This entire country, this entire education system, this entire existence of America is built on white supremacy. So if you actually do go out of your way to teach them equality and equity, which I don't believe you are, but if you did, you've still failed your children. Parents fail their children. Then those children grow up and weaponize their biases against others, which has large-scale ramifications at work and in the world. So while it would be easy to look at a situation like Jolly's and think, that's extreme, or even to dehumanize Jolly's dad, who taught Jolly to hate, it's clear to me that Jolly's dad's racist attitudes were rooted in his own fears, insecurities, and pain. Basically, my mom and dad divorced when I was three. My dad was a racist already in terms of anybody from the mountains of North Carolina at that time was a racist. That was just par for the course. Well, when my mom and dad divorced, my mom had almost immediately gotten into another relationship with another man, but that man was a black guy. So that exacerbated my dad's own racism because the trope is, the stereotype is that, you know, black men are out here trying to steal white women. And so when my mom marries a black man, which is what she did. That was it. You know, you got people on the mountain telling my dad, hey, your wife left you for a, you know, N-word. And, you know, this really upsets my dad's ego. And my dad's in his 20s. So he really become an angry racist after that. And then my mom was very, very young. So when I was born, my mom was only 16. And my dad was 21. Go 80s, right? And so 
when it came time for custody, my mom didn't stand a chance. I mean, she's married to a black man. It's North Carolina. It's the 80s. You're not getting custody of your white child. And then to make things worse, she was like 19 at the time. And my dad at the time was 24. So you're not getting custody of your kid. So she didn't. So uh, my dad got full custody of me, which was damn near unheard of in the 80s for the dad to get custody. But with all the circumstances, especially her being married to a black man, she's not getting custody. So she didn't. So I was 10 years old before I saw her again. During that time, I was fully indoctrinated to believe that her marriage to a black man was not a real marriage because God didn't approve interracial marriages. I was shown in the Bible because, you know, we're God-fearing folk, right? We go to church every Sunday, Wednesday, youth group on Thursday. We were very involved in church. So I was, you know, led to believe that the Bible specifically said you can't marry outside your race. And so therefore, the three children she had had in that time period with her new husband were bastards because her marriage wasn't even real. And so then along come, I turned 10 years old. And there's more to the story. Again, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version, but my dad was extremely abusive, very abusive. Child Protective Services took me out of my home on two different occasions. Uh, the second time was for over a year. My dad wasn't even allowed to take me back because I had been beaten so severely. I mean, and, and I mean beaten in the sense of like the rare type beatings the children get. Like I'm lucky to be alive. I don't know how the hell you get your son back, but he always got me back, but whatever. And then my stepmom, who was my dad's second wife, was an absolute just witch to me. She consistently abused me and my life was miserable. So by the time I was 10, I mean, I hated everybody in the whole world. You know what I mean? I was a very insecure 10-year-old child. I had no self-esteem, no, no whatever. And so I found out that my mom had went to court to get visitation rights of me. And I'm like, I don't want to see her. Not that I could explain it as a 10-year-old, but now as a, as a, as a 40-year-old man looking back and, and understanding things better, I was not only pissed off at her because of what my dad had told me, but I was really pissed off. Where the fuck have you been? Like, I, my life has been miserable, like miserable. Like, I just wanted to die. I want to kill myself. And then now you show up, like, fuck you. So anyway, she goes to court and she gets visitation rights on me. So it was every other Saturday I had to go to, to her house for like, or go with her, not right to her house, but with her for like two or three hours or something like that, four hours, I don't remember. But it was every other Saturday. I remember that. She comes to pick me up for the first Saturday and then, we go to a museum. It was like a neutral territory. It was not go straight to her house, but neutral territory, kind of break the ice, get to know each other. And the whole time, I'm just fucking very mean to her. I'm calling her an inward lover. I'm calling all her children inwards. I'm telling her that God doesn't even approve of your marriage. You know, you're going straight to hell for marrying an inward. This is how I'm talking to her. And part of the reason I'm talking to her that way is I never want to see her again. So I'm thinking if I, if I'm just really, really mean to you, you'll leave me alone. So it was a very not a good visit. And when the time was up, she dropped me back off of my house. And I was absolutely certain she wouldn't come pick me up anymore. But two weeks later, she did. She did come pick me up again. And I was like, wow, you know, this lady's crazy. So we go to her house, the second visit. And it was that visit that kind of started to change things for me because we got there and she's like, hey, I want you to meet your siblings. And I told her, I said, you know, those N-words are not my siblings. Well, she was like, listen, I want you to meet them. So I sat down on the couch because I really had no choice. And then they came out, which, of course, I'm older than them, obviously, because I was the firstborn. And then they're all excited to see me. Oh, Russell, Russell, Russell. What? And it turns out, you know, my mom had told them good things about me. You have an older brother. And they're very just excited to meet me. And my younger brother has a ninja turtle. And they're showing me their toys and stuff. And I'm 10 years old. 
And I wanted to be mean to them, but I couldn't, right? Because they were so nice to me. So I decided to just tolerate their existence almost in my head. And then I would slowly start playing with my brothers when they turtle with him and then come back the next week or the next visitation. And then they were like, hey, you want to go outside and play basketball with our friends, which I loved basketball. So that was good for me. I, I really loved the sport. So I go outside and now we're in an all black neighborhood and everybody I'm playing with is black. And these are like the only black people I've ever even spoken to in my life. And as this happens, or as I go over there each visitation and I'm making friends, what I'm realizing is everything that I've been told is happening in black neighborhoods, everything I'm being told that black people are doing, everything I've been told about black people in general just isn't happening. It just isn't true. And so I had, I had reached what I call this critical crossroads, which I think is important for a lot of people to understand, but that's another part of my journey to educate white America. But I had two choices, the very obvious reality that's right in front of my face or the reality that had been given to me my whole life. And I had to make a choice. And as a, you know, 11, 12 year old child, I made a choice. I'm going to trust what's in front of me. This, this has to be real. It's happening right in front of me. And so I did. And so I kind of began on my own journey and it was a very lonely journey because Obviously, I can't talk to dad about it. He's a full-fledged racist. And then I'm the only, I don't have a close enough relationship with my mom to talk to her about these things. So I just kind of went on this journey of seeking the truth. Biased understandings of others are based on the faulty notion that I know who you are without actually knowing who you are. But the truth of another person's experiences are something they hold within themselves. We don't have to know or understand or categorize in order to honor and respect others. For instance, there are many who might not understand biraciality or bisexuality, but I don't really need them to in order to treat me with kindness, compassion, and respect. And there are many who don't understand how a person they've always known to be a certain gender or name can quote-unquote change. But so what? Someone else's truth doesn't have to make sense to me in order to respect it. All I have to do is stop trying to figure someone else out according to my own mental constructions and simply embrace that every one of us is the one best equipped to have access to the truth about our own identities and experiences. Bias against non-binary people is still something that is a subject of emerging research. And I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see what that research uncovers. So anecdotally, non-binary people experience, from what I understand, from what I've seen in, in my studies and talking to my colleagues, they experience very high levels of discrimination because they can't be categorized, they can't be boxed, they can't be understood, they can't be oversimplified the way people are generally comfortable making snap decisions. And I mean that we all make snap decisions about other people. It's just really important to understand where those decisions come from, what prejudice they might be rooted in, so that we make sure we don't act in accordance with any prejudice that we might start to feel. So for non-binary people, I mean, the numbers of non-binary people in the workplace is increasing as there's more social acceptance of being non-binary, as well as being transgender, there's a greater sort of social awareness that, oh, this is a normal way to be. This is a way to be in the workplace, but it's such a fast changing field that I think we still don't understand as much as we should about what that kind of prejudice looks like. 
That was Liz Brown, Associate Professor, Law and Taxation at Bentley University. Liz earned her BA from Harvard College and her JD from Harvard Law School and represented Fortune 100 companies for 13 years prior to joining Bentley's faculty. She and I spoke about how the impulse to categorize others leads to a whole host of problematic behaviors in the workplace, and how important it is to become more attuned to the complexity and intersectionality of identity. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. 
LaTanya Wilkins is the founder of the Change Coaches LLC, an organization dedicated to creating revolutionary leadership development, culture change, and extraordinary personal growth, and the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. LaTanya spoke about the importance of taking an intersectional approach to understanding identity and working to dismantle the destructive impact of unchecked bias in the American workplace. And I should mention that I interviewed her in early March at the beginning of Women's History Month. Today, I'm going to be releasing a LinkedIn newsletter about intersectionality in Women's History Month. And all our identities are fully right. And it's hard because I think moving through the world, people didn't know what to do with me because they had never really met anyone like me. So they were like, I have to put you in a box. I have to, it's like, we have these schemas, right? And we're like, wait, how do I talk to this person? It's weird. Like she's a black woman, but she's kind of in drive. She's not like other black women that I know, you know, because there's not that many, right? So you're like, how do I do this? How do I do this? And so that's why I talk about leading below the surface. So then it's getting below the surface with people to bring all their identities to the table. And this has to do a lot with intersectionality because there is this fluidity in who we are and like what identities come to the table. I mean, my black identity is always front and center. My queer identity, you know, it's something that it's probably, you know, most people probably pick up on it. It's probably visible in some ways, but it's something that if I'm walking down the street, probably someone's not thinking about it, right? It's the black identity, right? The woman identity, like, I'm that, but I don't identify as much with that. It's not as front and center. And then there's all the other intersectionalities like socioeconomical and all those types of things. But I love that, that it it is because you kind of, you kind of flow in and out of different identities at different times. Right. And the black identity is kind of like the foundation, like that doesn't go away. It's like, you have cars on the road, but the black identity is the road, right? Like that road goes nowhere. It holds everything else up, but that's, or it threads everything else together, or it's like the nucleus, but then there's all these other things, right? And yeah, if only we could accept humans that way, because it's like when people come out at work as queer or trans or whatever, it's, oh, and that's all people see you as after that. But if we could see people more for what they're going to bring to the table because of this, or how you might need to adjust because of this, or how can you connect with them because of this instead of, yeah, well, this is the queer person on the team. And it's like, we still have a really hard time doing this. And that's, again, that's why we're leading below the surface. I mean, even with, we talk about systemic racism, for example, it's like, I read a lot. I read a few anti-racism books and there's very few of those books that talked about intersectional identities with Blackness. And we just have a long way to go with that. But yes, it's we're definitely fluid. And I would love to see more of that. I would love to see more of that too. A widening of the understanding that individuals are vast and that reducing anyone to a single element of their identity can cause us to miss out on their unique gifts and talents. And this reductionistic view of others often comes from inaccurate information or because we've had interactions with someone else who we've mentally cast as a representative of all other people in that identity category. 
In her work, Bev Weinberg sees individuals with disabilities being dismissed in advance because prospective employers have so conflated and collapsed disability as an identity category that many employers can fail to see the variety of experiences and skills that different people with disabilities bring to the table. And instead, they might use a single negative experience to justify ongoing discrimination. Bev is the founder and executive director of Integrate for Good and an occupational therapist with a passion for enhancing community engagement with a special focus on partnering with individuals with developmental disabilities. We're still very new into this paid competitive employment arena where, you know, we're getting there, but there are still places where people get paid less than minimum wage. And that's that's a whole discussion for there are people on both sides of that. But I think it is, it's a lot of pressure when you feel like you need to represent your whole marginalized community and in the disability community, because I might live with autism, am I also representing somebody with someone that uses a wheelchair for their mobility or, and that I think is a, is a very serious issue. And I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. Cause I do see that happening. Like we tried it and it didn't work, but thank you. Oh, okay. You know, little things like Jenny, who's on our board, tells a story. She got a job at Chuck E. Cheese and her job was getting ready for the kids' birthday parties. And she had to put five video coins in like a little pouch. And each kid at the birthday party got their five video coins to play their games. And counting to five was something that was challenging for her because of her intellectual disability. She's a brilliant board member for us. We don't ask her to put five coins in a bag because that's not her strength. But it was the next time someone posts and they're like, oh, yeah, we had somebody here and it didn't work out. Pigeonholing people is a problem. And yes, there are legal protections and company policies that are meant to prevent against identity-based discrimination. But it happens all the time. We can even project identity biases into ourselves and feel insecure or inferior as a result. Joyce Jelks, known personally and professionally as JJ, shared with me that for a long time she was giving away her expertise for free because she had received so much cultural messaging that as a Black woman, she somehow wasn't entitled to all of her success or she owed it to others to give back without any expectations of reciprocity. JJ is the head of people and culture at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, an Army major, the chief founding member, relationship engagement manager for Sean Johnson, and the founder of Ottawa Park HR Advisory. It's very easy to do things that we've always done. And that minute that you make yourself a tiny bit uncomfortable, it's like, ugh. And sometimes we talk ourselves out of it. So like, for example, I'm like, hey, I'm going to start this business. But then part of me is like, who do you think you are? charging people for this. Right. But you look at it, you're like, wait a second, is this because of how I've grown up? Because, you know, I'm used to hearing, you know, put your head down, work your butt off. It'll come to you. And that doesn't always work. That doesn't always work. And sometimes you have to tell them like, Hey, no, this is, I understand what I'm valued. You may not know that yet. Cause you actually don't care. You care about what you're valued and you'll go to the market all day to make sure you benchmark yourself, but you're not going to benchmark me. Right. So I realized I was like, wait a second, these things were happening for other people. So you start to have all these examples of what's happening. And it takes a second to be like, wait a second, like there's an actual uh, return here that I'm not getting, (laughs) but, but it's one of those things where it's good to be humble 
but sometimes it's like there's inflation, right? Like cost of living goes up. So why doesn't our worth go up? Because as we read more books, as we become exposed to more things, our value goes up because we've learned more and our advice becomes that much better. So as we get older, smarter, wiser, we should charge for that advice because we have, it's even better, right? And I'm talking, I guess, to myself too, which is helpful. I'm like doing pep talk inside, (laughs) but it's true. It's really true. And I think it's fulfilling, right? And we'll be happier to give that advice if we know that we're being valued in the way that we should. So the advice can be that much better. I'd be happy to give it to you. JJ said it was initially uncomfortable for her to begin charging for her consulting services and owning the value she brought to the table. And to be fair, insecurities impact individuals of all identities. It's just that because of disparities in power and privilege, for some of us, those insecurities can manifest as undervaluing ourselves, and for others, it can have the opposite effect. But all of it has to do with a prioritization of arbitrary ideals that miss out on the fact that diversity itself ought to be the ideal. Through intersectional and interdisciplinary studies, Sharona has come to understand a lot about how biases about who we are, what we look like, and how we quote-unquote measure up to imagined ideals shape how we're perceived by others and how we perceive ourselves. The disability studies scholar Rosemary Garland Thompson talks about the normate, right? The idealized normal body to which we all aspire that on some level is fundamentally impossible, although some people can get closer to it than others, or the theorists Deleuze and Guattari talk about the ideal face and all the deviations away from it, which is for them one of the sources of racism. So you have this kind of idealized white cisgender male face that everybody can only be a degree away from to a certain extent. But while that's all really interesting, on some level, it also doesn't matter. And we have seen this and we know this pretty broadly that you could be shown a an airbrushed image of some sort of impossible to achieve body face combination of a person, right? Or you could look at somebody's beautifully curated Instagram and you can know, they can tell you and you can know for a fact that this is airbrushed, this is curated, this isn't representative, this isn't real life. That doesn't actually make you feel better about yourself. That doesn't actually make you want to achieve that ideal less for some people, right? So there are all of these cultural pressures on appearance. But having said that, we're seeing much broader diversity of bodies. We're seeing much wider acceptance. We're seeing less pressure on that. Now, how successful any campaign that is motivated by a company that wants you to buy something, even if they're showing diversity of body types, is something we can sit and interrogate. But I think on some levels, there has been movement. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148. 
or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. One of the impacts of bias is that the accumulation of expectations to measure up to arbitrary and capricious standards leads to social disparities in things like life expectancy, health, emotional well-being, safety, and belonging. After all, existing in environments where we are constantly being told to show up as someone other than ourselves or receiving messages that who we are isn't good enough leads to a lot of negative and destructive outcomes. For instance, it led Elizabeth Smith to jeopardize her health just to feel like she fit in. Elizabeth is a disability advocate and researcher, a graduate of Rollins College who double majored in music and communication, and a current participation in the Accelerate Graduate Studies program. Elizabeth is currently obtaining a Master of Public Health degree, which she will receive by 2024. So I developed a disability when I was 13, 14. And so before that, I was an active dancer, and I actually um, did do a little bit of running (laughs) once in a while, and I actually did the aerial art where I would climb the silks, so I was extremely active. And so this identity change really didn't happen for me until college when I am now using a wheelchair and people are acting differently. It made me not want to embrace this identity because it's so different from what I experienced up until that age. And so I kept trying to think about how I can fit in this body that just feels so much different than it did before that usually when people would say certain things or they, or they wouldn't say things, I just tried to be polite or this or that, but yeah, it just seems so odd to me. And It was actually at the end of my first year was when the summer came and I was trying to decide about my sophomore year. And it was during that summer that I decided I didn't like the way that people were acting and I didn't like myself. It just didn't feel like me because it was this totally different identity than I experienced before that I said, that I'm going to try to not use my wheelchair. And I actually went as extreme as saying, I'm not going to even take my medication from my heart because of how devastating it felt to me at that time. And so that was where I was at, at the end of my first year. Elizabeth is taking her medication and using her wheelchair again. But it's sobering to think about how the environment around her, an environment that was inaccessible and exclusionary, led her to come to the conclusion that the only way to belong was to hide her disability. And that's a conclusion a lot of people come to. According to the Harvard Business Review, more than 61% of individuals with a disability hide their disability at work. And identity concealment or suppression isn't unique to those with disabilities. According to a 2015 article by Fast Company, 61% of the American workforce is concealing some element of their identity at work, afraid that disclosing will result in stigma or somehow hinder their professional advancement. Sabrina Volpone spends a lot of time thinking about identity management and self-concealment in the workplace. 
Sabrina is an associate professor in the Organizational Leadership Division at the University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business and a diversity researcher who uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to understand how organizations manage their diverse workforces and how diverse individuals flourish through the management of their identities at work. There's a number of reasons to engage in identity management, a number of different motivations. Sometimes it's uh, what you've been taught to do. Sometimes you just see other people that look like you kind of acting in that way. So you're like, oh, I, I guess that's how we do it here. But you can also be very strategic. And so things like identity management, you know, let's give a solid example rather than just these general terms. A classic example is someone who belongs to the LGBTQ plus community choosing to conceal or hide or keep to themselves their sexual orientation, whether they identify as gay or bisexual or queer, et cetera. And that is a strategic choice that they're making to manage their identity through concealing. There are other people who choose to disclose a hidden identity. Employees every day are making these strategic decisions about what are the boundaries between professional and my personal life. And we know that our social identities are a part of our professional and can actually be very beneficial to the decision-making, the judgment, the perspectives we're bringing to the workplace to help our organizations. But let's be honest, it's a struggle to really manage those identities in a way. It's like, what's professional, what's personal, and how do I bring myself to the workplace in a way that is professional? That's not going to open me up to additional stigma or discrimination or, you know, let's be honest, in my lifetime, we've made a lot of progress with whether it's laws around gay marriage and acceptance overall in society of different LGBTQ plus identities. Uh, but if we look at some of the progress just over the last short couple of years, you know, in my lifetime as an adult, whether it's the military and their don't ask, don't tell policy, which set a certain norm of how do we manage these identities? How do we talk about these non-visible identities to state of being where certain states, you can still being able to be fired for your sexual orientation. It makes these decisions very complicated. That's not to say that we owe anyone access to more information than we would want to disclose, but that we should be working towards creating a world in which people can feel safe in bringing themselves forward if they choose. Also, it's important to note that some identities may be immediately obvious, while others may not be apparent at all unless people choose to disclose them. Identity bias may be directed at visible or invisible identities, and those with underrepresented or marginalized identities will often have different levels of choice depending on whether their differences are apparent to others. Identity management and the choices of how we talk about our identities are relevant for both visible and non-visible identities. However, there are a number of different identity management strategies and tactics that are more available to people with non-visible identities, which makes the decision process around identity management better in some ways because you get to have more agency over when you disclose, if you disclose, how you disclose, and can maybe even think more about that 
before you engage in a situation where you disclose to your boss or you disclose to your coworkers. But at the same time, that's more of an onus and burden in addition to having to do identity management, which, you know, why can't we just be in organizations where we don't have to do that? You know, the onus should not be on people with stigmatized identities having to do additional emotional labor and cognitive, just thinking about how to manage their identities. But given the world that we live in, and this does in some ways help individuals navigate bias and stigma and laws and, you know, the, the things they're having to navigate in their workplaces and society overall, identity management is a real conversation. And so there are a number of these identity management tactics that are available, not only to people with visible stigmatized identities, but also non-visible. And so while it can make things better and give you more agency over when, how, if I'm going to disclose something, it can also make that process have more steps, be more cognitively weighing on you because then those decisions you, you know, you do think about more and ruminate about more. And if it goes bad, that's on you because you were the one who decided to disclose and maybe you thought you read a situation wrong or something. And then that's even more on you, which it never should have been on you in the first place. By devaluing the contributions of certain individuals, society misses out on all they have to offer and those who are forced to suppress themselves or whose identities are marginalized absorb the ramifications of societal prejudice. Tamar Pearson-Brown is an Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence and a Clinical Associate Professor of Law at University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Tamar is also the Director of the Health Law Clinic, which operates as a medical legal partnership with UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. The social determinants of health are all the factors in how we live, how we work, how we play, how we worship, how we care for one another, how we interact with one another that bear on our health. So more specifically, those are things like the quality of our environment, our access to clean air, our access to clean water, the quality of our education, right? The access that we have to quality educational opportunities. They are things like our socioeconomic status and our access to safe and healthy housing, our access to fresh vegetables and our diet, right? Do we live in a food desert or do we live near a Whole Foods, right? All of those are the social determinants of health, and we need them to be healthy. So some of the scaffolds around those are socioeconomic status. So if I am of a higher socioeconomic status, I'm more likely to have access to to Whole Foods. If I'm lower, I'm more likely to live in a food desert. If another scaffold around that really is race, right? There's, There's so much that aligns white racial identity with access to the best attributes of the social determinants of health. And so many persons of color are disproportionately likely to have access to the least in terms of social determinants of health. And then they layer on themselves, right? We can think about the overlay of gender on access to social determinants of health. We can think about the overlay of being a member of the LGBTQ community, right? When we think about, for example, transgender people of color, 
their disproportionate exposure to the worst of certain health outcomes, it increases, right? Like they're more disproportionately likely to have poorer health outcomes in a variety of sectors. So really the scaffolds around our ability to access the social determinants of health are the ways that aspects of our identity have been politicized. If we didn't insist on a presumption of superiority for some and a presumption of inferiority for others along the broad spectrum of all of our identity markers, we wouldn't have this series of scaffolds around our ability to access the social determinants of health. Tamar told me that disparities in health and wellness can be linked to bias in ways that are direct, obvious, and linear, or that the connections can be indirect and amorphous. Biased assumptions lead to health disparities in direct and indirect ways, right? So when we think about structural racism and how that plays itself out, we can think about that surfacing in people's lives really directly, but also in some indirect ways. So directly, when we think about institutional bias around pain tolerance or or personally held biases around pain tolerance and, and the belief in biological differences between races. There's this false assumption that Black people have thicker skin or have more ability to withstand pain. And so these beliefs in a higher pain threshold for for Black Americans, for example, results in actual disparities in pain management. So Black patients seeking care don't receive the same quality of pain management. They walk away from the patient encounter feeling uh, that they were less seen, that they were less well-treated. And that can have consequential effects, right? If I'm going in for treatment and I'm saying I'm having heart pain and you're telling me, no, your pain really isn't that severe, I'm less likely to come in for follow-up treatment. And that can reinforce a negative health outcomes for me personally, but it also can lead to a reinforcement of some other biased assumptions about, well, who is compliant with follow-up care? Who is really going to take that healthcare advice, right? So there's a direct connection between the biases of the medical profession and the health outcome of the patient. But there's also indirect health effects. When we think about assumptions, for example, of who is credit worthy or who can be financially trusted, right? Those assumptions might affect if I'm a banker, who I'm going to give a home loan to. Then if I'm not able to get a mortgage in a healthy neighborhood that has access to good schools or fresh groceries, clean water, right? Clean air, then I'm experiencing all of the downstream health effects of those social determinants. So our biases in healthcare can have direct health effects, but they can also have attenuated health effects that we've got to be really careful and mindful that we're tracing back to the source of these beliefs and the institutions that can allow us to be lazy in our thinking and continue to reinforce some of these prejudicial assumptions. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, 
Whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook, too. Happy learning. Anel has seen firsthand that the problems that manifest as a result of bias can then become absorbed into the body. Yeah, at the moment, I'm, I'm delivering trauma-sensitive yoga sessions to this organization, but mainly to a group of women that have suffered from violence and violence in general. It could be domestic violence, it could be systemic institutional violence and and all of that because we are here under this migration status and uh, our experiences are are very different to to other people which aren't under this migratory status so also depending on the color of the skin depending you know this identity that is created Juan spoke about systemic disparities leading not only to stigma, but to shame. There's been lots of studies about the shame that people feel about poverty. I'm fully aware that I had those ranges of emotion because it ultimately, it touched me at different points. You know, the shame of how we're living my life. You know, ultimately, let me, let me sum up. Is there some sort of moral fault? Is there some sort of something that we've done wrong, that we didn't get right, that we're living on this side of the tracks. And I know that that's, you know, as an adult, I know know, that whole, how that gets internalized, but it creates this unhealthiness for communities of color, creates this dissonance that, you know, we have to get past and recognize as we're having these conversations about DE&I in the 21st century, whereas we're having these conversations about systemic racism and how we need to be better. There's the intellectual and, you know, and there's the emotional. And I think it's a long-winded way of saying that I had a lot of emotions about where we were and what we needed to do about it as a family. If, as a result of bias in the workplace, or bias a person has experienced over the course of their lifetime, a person is made to feel that their ideas are less valuable, they may shut down or become defensive or try to exert themselves to prove their value in ways that are exhausting. And while it can be tempting to tell people who have been marginalized to be more confident or that they're quote-unquote safe here, systemic bias shapes behavior. It also shapes the face of leadership, which then dictates organizational culture, which perpetuates structural inequity, which conveys the message that some people aren't good enough, which then makes them less confident. This vicious cycle is something Charlotte Alexander shared about in her interview. 
Charlotte holds the Connie D. and Ken McDaniel Women Lead Chair as an Associate Professor of Law and Analytics at the Colleges of Business and Law at Georgia State University, where she uses computational methods to study legal text with a particular focus on understanding how courts process and resolve employment disputes and other types of civil lawsuits. Charlotte also founded and directs the university's Legal Analytics Lab, which works towards a legal system that embraces data to solve intractable problems and create a more just society. A lot of the research that comes out about women in leadership points to confidence, that women don't have the confidence to take that leap into a a new leadership position. Or there's a a study, I'll, I'll get the details wrong, but on average, women who go into politics have I don't know, some huge number of more years of experience professionally than men who go into politics for the first time. And it's the theory is that women just, you know, haven't had the confidence to step up, have had to wait until they were indisputably qualified. But I think that I like to complicate that confidence narrative somewhat, because no matter how confident you are, if all of the messaging that you're getting and all of the structures that are built around you are telling you that or, or, you know, not open to you, then confidence alone is not going to do it. So I've done a lot of reflecting on this because I teach in the Women Lead program. And what are we telling our students about leadership? And I think that confidence is really important. Don't get me wrong. But I also think we've got to fight the structural barriers, which won't come down with just confidence alone. There are many who possess credentials, knowledge, and experience, yet are devalued on the basis of other people's incorrect assumptions. For instance, immigrants to the United States, especially Black immigrants, both documented and undocumented, are consistently paid substandard wages or precluded from working jobs for which they may be qualified. Here's Rebecca again. Unfortunately, the common trend is that African immigrants in particular have a labor market disadvantage, and that's been true in the United States, in France, in Spain, in Israel, like just in general. And some of that has to do with the types of jobs that they work in. Some of that has to do with not getting paid appropriately in their jobs. But there's some disadvantage to having a foreign credentials that every immigrant is going to have to deal with because either it's not valued as much or employers don't know what that degree means because maybe it's the best university in your home country, but nobody knows what that is here. So there is some issue with foreign credentials, and especially for medical doctors, they have to get recertified when they get here and they may not have the resources to be able to go through that process to do that. So that can happen. And that does happen to immigrants of all backgrounds. The issue that I found, though, is that even when you compare people who are overeducated for their position among immigrants, African immigrants still have a larger wage disadvantage when they are overeducated. So it's something about being in the wrong job, but it's also the unexplained portion, which in quantitative research, we tend to suggest that it could be discrimination. We can't say outright because we don't know for sure. We're just working with survey data, but that's what it points to. We're back to the intersectionality of identity. 
a non-U.S. born individual will likely face certain structural barriers in the workplace. Then layer blackness on top of that, then gender or sexual orientation, and we can see how the greater the deviations from the most privileged identity, the more an individual has to contend with barriers. And another distressing element to add to that, and something that came up repeatedly over the course of these interviews, is just how many individuals who hold socially stigmatized or marginalized identities are put in situations where they're asked to become complicit in their own oppression. For instance, Sharona spoke about the pressure the media exerts on women of color whose loved ones have been victims of race-based police brutality. I was watching TV in the wake of a lot of the, of course, there have been many, many, many police shootings, particularly of Black men that didn't get publicized, but there was this recent, relatively recent at this point, attention in Ferguson and other spaces where attention began to be drawn. People began to draw attention, particularly Black activists, to this long history of police violence against Black people in the U.S. And I kept seeing this really strange ritual. It began to be like a ritual of Black women in particular being asked to do a television interview in the wake of a police shooting of their loved one, of their brother, lover, son, so on and so forth. And being asked, do you forgive the police officer who shot your loved one? It's grotesque. It's a grotesque question, right? It, it makes no sense at all. And it continued to happen. And my attention was peaked, like, what's actually up with that? So, you know, as a researcher, I'm first interested in seeing if this was something that was a trend or not. Either way, it's worth investigating, even if it happened once. But I kind of wanted to see how widespread it was. So me and a couple of wonderful research assistants sat down with a lot of tape, really upsetting stuff, and just worked our way through these and found it was actually a reasonably widespread trend. So I wanted to interrogate a little more. What's going on here? And there's some wonderful philosophy of language that thinks about these kinds of questions, what do apologies do in particular? And what was so clear here and drawing from that work is that Adrian Martin and other scholars that these women were basically being asked to relinquish their right to vengeance, to justice, to retribution, right? If you forgive someone, then a couple of things happen. Number one, you're restoring a system that's broken, right? Part of why people got so concerned about this was, I think some people were really concerned about the struggle for racial justice in this country. And some people were just concerned about what they saw to be protests that they saw as riots and so on and so forth. And they just wanted stuff restored, right? They wanted, and that meant going back to the status quo as opposed to agitating for real change. So you can forgive this one person, which is kind of a proxy for the police force. And, or you could say, well, that's an individual, this kind of bad apple effect. Well, you know, the scholar Sean Rye has talked a lot about how, you know, it's actually a poison tree. It's not a bad apple. So it was just this really strange phenomenon. And I'll say that what also became interesting to me were the modes of resistance that Black women displayed in these interviews, because none of them agreed to forgive these police officers. But there's so much disciplining of Black women's and Black men's bodies in particular that how to negotiate anger on a really public forum works differently for people of color than for white people. So it was a really, really careful negotiation of how to resist, how to reject this request to relinquish the 
justice that was absolutely their right, while at the same time not appearing to fall into particular stereotypes. Charlotte Burroughs, who was designated by President Biden to be chair of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, on January 20th, 2021, also spoke about how biased assumptions and expectations can put people in the position of being expected to present a certain way on the outside when they are the ones being harmed. Prior to her current position, Chair Burroughs served as a commissioner of the EEOC for multiple terms, and prior to that, she served as Associate Deputy Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, as well as General Counsel for Civil and Constitutional Rights to Senator Edward M. Kennedy. One of the things that I have observed is that there are with respect to some individuals, that there is a tradition of needing to be strong. And because those people, particularly with, I would say, African-American men and working class jobs, a lot of, you know, that is in many ways the community I know best, that the affect of someone who has been through a lot when they tell you about it may be different than what a jury expects. And you have to think about those things. Here's what I mean. I had the privilege of working with an individual, won't name him, who was an African-American man, extremely, extremely impressive and smart and strong and was in a traditionally, a job that was related to construction. And he had applied for a promotion And it was one of those promotional instances with multiple steps. And one of the steps was a test and another was an interview. And I forget what the rest, but it was sort of what you would imagine, right? So he goes through and aces the test. I think it was maybe a perfect score. And he aces the interview by some, depending on who you ask, but the interview panel ended up downgrading him. And it was an instance where the discrimination was clear. And what they had to do, because there were certain weights that needed to be applied to this. It was a a really, if you're a litigator, it was a great case, right? But as from the personal side, it was horrible. What had happened to him was that he had scored so high on the test that they literally had to throw the test out in order not to hire him. And what happened when we got the evidence was we could see they kept playing. There was all this evidence. Well, how did you score the test? You know, how did you score this whole process, the interview, the test? And there was one other piece, I think there was a background check. How did you score it? Well, traditionally, it had been scored where the test counted for a significant amount. And we could see in this, they reweighted it. Can you weight it this way, that way? And okay, but won't be 60% like usual, it'll be 50. No, he's still the top scorer. No, let's put it down to 20. They literally ended up not using the test at all, which was the only way that they could justify not hiring this gentleman. And it was extremely traumatic to him. But part of what, to know that he had done every, he killed himself to do well on that test. He'd done everything prepared, everything he could do. And they ended up hiring a white person instead of him who was less qualified and less impressive and was going to do a less good job. I think you could have argued very strenuously. And But what happened with, we ended up settling the case. 
But as we were thinking about going to trial, one of the things that I kept thinking about was it was so important that he not be seen, at least this was my impression, he not be seen as breaking in front of these folks who had done him so wrong, right? That I was a little concerned, how well is this going to play for the jury? Because I could see having grown up in a family with African-American men, like I could see that he was hurting. But I also knew that he wasn't gonna, he was not gonna get up on that jury stand and cry and complain and whine because that's not what we do. It's one of those things that I do wonder about and worry about a little bit that sometimes depending on the jury and depending on the expectation, you may not get as much many damages for folks who are really most deserving of them because it has been so bad. And so part of that is sort of the pride and the keeping the dignity as not sort of showing that, but it's also, frankly, sometimes you come across people who have been through so much that if they start to tell you how much it hurts, it's never gonna, it may never end. I think that they think about that. And I've seen that with some individuals who have experienced physical violence. And so it's one of those things, I think that as a society, we sort of say, oh, okay, if this happens to you, here's how you should behave. Whereas that's not actually true for everyone. And one of the challenges as a civil rights lawyer is how to explain that to people and make it clear so that when it comes time for that relief to come, it is as much as possible. Obviously, you can't undo what happened, but as much as possible, it fits the discrimination that occurs. In order to create greater social and psychological safety for individuals of all identities to feel safe to bring their full selves forward, we have to become more receptive to seeing others for who they are and not expecting them to be other than they are. And when I say see, I mean not just observe, but experience. Bev put it well. We believe the greatest way to reduce stigma around disability and any marginalized community really, is to get people proximate to each other. Having said that, getting people of different identities together is not a cure-all. It's also important for people of privileged identities to come together and call one another out. We have to be willing to make waves within our own circles, families, and identity cohorts. Here's Jolly again. You can't tell a people that hate an entire community to not hate that community by way of that community. So let me explain. Most of white America doesn't realize their own implicit biases and stereotypes and racism towards the black community. So it doesn't really matter how many great black leaders are out there. White America's not going to listen to black America. It's not going to happen. White America's not going to, you can't tell a community that hates a community or the same community that they hate is not going to tell them to stop hating. It's not going to happen. It takes somebody who looks like them, who was raised like them, who was, you know, went to church with them, who speaks like them and understands them to speak to them. It takes that. And that's what I have. I have on my side. I often tell people I know racist white people better than racist white people know themselves because I know what, what they're thinking and I know how they're thinking. And I understand where they're coming from. I understand what's happening around their dinner table. I understand, you know, we like the same foods. Culturally, I relate to these people. And so... It's all about speaking their language. You see, Black America has made 
great strides in exposing racism and racism education. But I think one thing that's been missing for a long time and not enough people realize this is black America doesn't understand racism from what's inside the white household. There's no way that you can. Black America never wasn't raised in a racist white household. You know what I mean? Like you got to be a white guy in a white household raised racist to understand. See, I've heard people who understand racism very well from black America say, well, the reason why people don't, don't, well, not really. I get where you're coming from. And like, I'm not saying you're wrong, wrong, but not real. You know, the reason white America doesn't want to admit it because they'll have to give up what they have. No, you're wrong. They don't know what they have. You're giving them way too much credit because you see it, because you understand it. You can't fathom the thought that somebody else can't see it. White America doesn't see it. They do not see it. My son was about five or six and he really wanted to play baseball. And I want to support him if that's what he wants to do. I don't know where he got this passion for baseball. He just wanted to play it. I said, well, let's go play baseball then. So first things first, let's go shop for a baseball glove. That's a good place to start. They'll take him out to like academy sports and like pick whatever glove you want. We'll just get whatever. So I want him to like his equipment. So he picks his glove, his really nice glove that he wants. I want that one, dad. No problem. So I go get it. And it was at that moment, I realized they don't have it in left-handed gloves. My son's left-handed. And I never in my whole life really even considered that because I'm a right-handed guy. And then, you know, I was like, well, fuck, they don't have this in left-handed. We'll pick out another one. Lo and behold, the next one's not. And then it was like the third choice that before I could find a glove that was left-handed. And then along comes even the batter's helmet is a left-handed, right-handed helmet because it's wh whichever ear it covers. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is becoming an absolute struggle just to get my son baseball equipment. But this world has existed my whole life, and I only now realize it as a right-handed guy. And so for people to assume that white America sees racism, understands racism, and is just consciously denying it is a woeful misunderstanding of how white privilege works. It's a woeful misunderstanding of how the world being built for you works. And so that's why it takes people like me to get white people to see it. Because unfortunately, non-white people don't understand white people for a good reason. It's not black America's job to educate white America anyway. It's not black America's job to, to uh, you know, the victims of oppression are not supposed to be the ones who teach the oppressors to stop oppressing them anyway. All that being said, truth be told, just a lot of people don't understand white Americans. So what I've learned is you got to triage people. You know, there's three kinds of white Americans. There's the ones that are like, well, okay, I kind of see what you're saying. I want to learn more. There's the ones that say, I see what you're saying, but, 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 but. And there's the ones that are just never going to see it. And there's, those are three levels of triage. The ones that are down here, like, I see what you're saying. I want to learn more. Let's, let's talk to them first. And then let's get to the but, but, buts. And then these guys up here are probably lost forever. And that's okay. You just got to let it go. There's so much misunderstanding about race. Like there was uh, Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis was a black guy who made friends with Klan members and basically got them to turn their hoods in. I'm sure you've heard the story. People say, wow, now that's how it's done. No. I mean, nothing against Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is an amazing guy. I think his story is incredible. I think what he did was absolutely heroic. Don't get me wrong. But this is going to be painful for some people to swallow, but these are hard pills to swallow. Getting the top 1% of white supremacists to see the light is so much easier than getting the vast majority of America to see the light. Because if you're so lost in the sauce, if you're so racist that you think literally touching a black person, they're black will rub off on your hands. So I was literally told that. I was told that, hey, boy, don't play with them little inward kids because it'll rub off on you. I was told that. You understand that that's easy to break through. That's easy to get past. Hey, shake my hand. Look, I didn't wipe off on you. Oh, my God. Now your whole reality is in question. Right? Like, oh, look at me. I'm dressed like 
you would think of white person dressed like as soon as a white supremacist meets somebody who doesn't fit the stereotype, their world's in, in shambles. It's just easier to get through. And so it takes somebody like Daryl Davis to get through those people. Those people, a white guy's not getting through to. It takes a black guy to challenge their entire existence. And that's how come he was successful. But when you come down off that top 1% into the majority of white America, where the majority of white supremacy exists, where the, where the casual everyday white supremacy exists, where the type of white supremacy that's been perpetuated for the last 240 years and still exists 2022, that Daryl Davis approach isn't going to work anymore. Because becoming friends with a black person emboldens their white supremacy. I'm not a racist. I got black friends. So you have to figure out what level of radical you're on, and you got to approach it from that level. When it comes to addressing bias, it's important to take a multifaceted approach. Exposure and proximity to others, working from within oppressive systems, working from outside those systems, creating new structures, incentivizing a variety of identities, experiences, and perspectives, encouraging expansive representation, and much more. We have to be patient, persistent, and pragmatic. Also, it's essential to make sure that efforts to dismantle bias don't do the same thing bias does, which is divest people of their agency. James Barnes is a corporate trainer, coach, and public speaker whose own transition has equipped him to teach companies, schools, hospitals, and other organizations to create safe, uplifting, and empowering environments for LGBTQ individuals with a special emphasis on serving transgender adults and youth. He shared with me that empowerment is a critical component of any meaningful intervention. And to give a sense of context, I'd shared with him how recovering from an eating disorder required my participation along with outside support and intervention. I want rights to be passed. I want bills to be passed. And I want to amplify the voices of the activists. But to just be like, let's protect them. It's like, no, no, no. I want to empower them. I want to empower them the same way I want to empower my friends who are Black women. And I want to amplify them. I do not want to just protect. I don't want to just shield them. I want to protect. I want to empower them. I want them to see their beauty and have their own platform where I don't speak and they get to speak and they get to have their voice. And I want that for trans youth. I want them to be empowered. I don't want to just keep them marginalized. You know what I think is actually very, very sad about fill in the phobia is that often those people that I know that I work with, that I get to speak with on a daily basis are people who, because of the way that the culture is structured, have had to develop adaptability, innovation, creativity, mm-hmm. um, forethought, you know, all of these incredible mm-hmm. dynamic things that I think make people capable of showing up Mm -hmm. and really doing meaningful work and showing up and being an empathetic employee and friend and all these things. So you mentioned the eating disorder. You know, I think about your experiences and I'm like, I don't know that I would, because I think so much of all of the best parts of me come from some Mm. of the the most challenging, most process oriented pieces of how I've lived. Yeah, absolutely. I would not trade my, my mental breakdown for anything because it, it taught me if I had been raised with awesome coping skills and I transitioned and I had a great transition, I never in my life would have thought to become who I am today. I would probably be doing some other job and living a great life and it would have been awesome, but I wouldn't have this sense of purpose. And I think that that's a bummer <laughs> that I had to go through that, but going through that 
made other individuals anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts very real because I experienced all of them. I remember in middle school when I was suicidal and I didn't know why. And I remember in college when I was suicidal, I didn't know why. And then I had this specific like breakdown and I was very, I could literally like draw the dots of everything. And it was like um, on a beautiful mind where everything like <laughs> comes together. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is solvable. We can actually take a step back. And if I had been able in middle school to do this, while doing that, while doing this, I never would have struggled with being suicidal. And it was like this, like, oh, fuck, I've got to help people. And it was like, I have purpose. I think you're right. I think that it's terrible that these things have to happen. But some of the most brilliant minds I know are people who are from marginalized groups who are just resilient. They just do not give a fuck. And they are going to do everything they can to make the world better or to show up as themselves or to make it safer for other people or whatever it may be, they show up and they have gumption and it is just beautiful. And so it, it's terrible. It's like the Phoenix that you have to like go through the fire, but then you come out and you're just like, dang, that's, you are a rock star. Those who have faced adversity often have a level of resilience, empathy, and innovation that can add value to organizations. That's not to say that only those who have faced bias and or discrimination have value to offer, or that people should seek out pain in order to grow from it. I simply want to acknowledge that our workplaces are full of rock stars, many of whom are being overlooked and underutilized. Here's Liz again. Recognizing the full humanity of the people that we work with is incredibly important to help them feel like they can show up and be their full selves at work. Back when I was a lawyer, that was not possible for me in the kinds of law firms that I worked with at the time in which I was working there. It was a very testosterone heavy, male dominated environment where there was a fairly narrow way that you were allowed to act at work. And that's incredibly stressful if you don't naturally fit that profile. And I didn't. The more we can say your productivity at work is not just a function of how well you can narrowly meet this profile, but instead broaden the ways in which people can show up and be successful. And I don't mean to ignore the goals of the company. I mean, obviously every workplace has a certain set of needs, but can we allow people to be their full selves while meeting the needs of the business? The more we can do that, the better for everybody. And the more people can be their full selves at work and elsewhere, the more we get to know one another and the more at least some of our biases naturally dismantle themselves. Here's A.C. Folks, the executive officer of Folks Consulting, an LGBTQ plus sensitivity and transgender inclusion consulting firm. I tell people all the time, and I really, really mean this to my core, I believe this. It is hard to hate up close. When something is this far distant, enigmatic thing that you don't actually engage with on a personal level, it's really, really easy to demonize it. It's really, really easy to hate, but it is hard to hate up close. And so when we actually have meaningful interaction and connection with people, that are not like us, right? Someone of a different race, a different ethnicity, someone who has a different love style or whatever the case might be, when we're able to engage with them in a meaningful way and see 
their humanity and see just who they are and the beauty of who they are, it is so hard, so hard to hate up close. It takes effort, that's for sure. The closer we get to others, the more we start to see them for who they are, rather than who we might have assumed them to be. Here's Jackie again. Yeah, it's interesting because it sort of goes back a little bit to your TED talk that was wonderful. I'll just say that and hope you leave it in this interview. But you were talking about very much the same things. You were talking about assumptions people make about you, like what is your identity? I mean, you're Black, aren't you? No, I'm multicultural. And it's obviously different because what you're dealing with is presenting in a certain way and certain communities want to claim you or not claim you or whatever. I wish this country could have a more nuanced discussion about racial identity, racial injustice, assumptions we make about each other, because the way an individual presents, and even the way an individual presents on like social media, you know, with little sound bites, that is not who the individual is. And until we can, I think, tolerate each other as people and learn to have a more nuanced debate, which I don't see happening anytime soon, you know, I don't want to excuse myself and say, well, I'm not really part of the problem because I didn't really grow up here. I mean, that's not true. I choose to be here. I choose to engage with the things I choose to engage with. But I don't know how we get from these, exactly what you were talking about in your TED Talk with, well, you're black, aren't you? It's like, well, why does it matter? And why can't I just be who I am, regardless of what you think I look like or sound like? I appreciate Jackie referencing my TEDx talk, Black or White, Refusing to Choose and Embracing Biracial Identity. And we'll put a link to the talk in the show notes. But more important than me sharing about what it's like to hold an identity that is two things simultaneously, it's important for all of us to acknowledge that how others see us tells us less about ourselves than about them and vice versa. Here's what Sharona had to say. Ultimately, if I have a finding, then that's a big if, right? That how we see people tells us so much more about ourselves than them. So we can unpack so many of our own personal biases, but also our broad communal assumptions, social, cultural, and so on by thinking about the inverse, right? Thinking not just about how we present ourselves to the world, but what it is we see in others. So we have created this way in which we think we know something about people based on how they look. And that is true on one level because of all these questions of power and adherence and self-fashioning. But at the same time, it's not a given that because a person looks a certain way, they are a certain type of person. So really the interrogation needs to be a lot more internal. In the coming days and weeks, as your own reflexive biases and assumptions come up, I would invite you to interrogate yourself about where those beliefs are coming from. And in your workplace, think about the ramifications of bias. Remember, we all have biases. It's not about suppressing or ignoring our reactions. It's about noticing them, examining them, and reacting out of our authentic values rather than the lies we've been led to believe about ourselves and each other. So let's ask ourselves and others, who is making decisions, whose voices are being heard, and how can we work to ensure that everyone has a seat at the table? Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. 
Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests Leora Eisenstadt, Sharona Pearl, Anel Duarte, Cameron Footman, Jackie Lipton, Sky Koaleski, Stu Cranes, Alita Miranda Wolf, Juan Otero, Rocky Maynor, Jeff Maynor, Tanner Gears, Jonathan Howe, Rebecca Tesfai, Jolly Good Ginger, A.C. Folks, Liz Brown, LaTanya Wilkins, Joyce J.J. Jelks, Elizabeth Smith, Sabrina Volpone, Tomar Pearson Brown, Charlotte Alexander, Chair Charlotte Burroughs, and James Barnes, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.